Hey, pal podcast listeners, we've got a special one here for you today. We have Mark Shoeline of Crown Ace Hardware. Enjoy talking to him. Uh, great dude. Obviously, uh, old pal, or Opal, or whatever you wanted to call it. You'll, if you listen to the episode, you'll understand what we're talking about. Uh, good time talking to him. Very good stuff, and I hope you guys enjoy it. Thanks. Hey everyone, welcome back to a PAL podcast. We've got a good one here. I'm excited about this one. We've got Mark Shuline of Crown Ace Hardware. Uh, Mark, welcome to the PAL podcast. I know you're a longtime listener. For sure. Love it. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, I'm glad you're here. Uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about you, who you are, uh, and uh, where your stores are at, and how many you got there? Sure. So, Mark Shuline. I am based um, in Southern California. I'm actually standing here in my office in Huntington Beach, which is a, a coastal town in Orange County. And uh, we have stores. We have 19 stores. Um, we just brought our last one on last week, and we've been in a pretty aggressive growth mode. But we've got stores. I like to say we have we have stores in three and a half states. So we have stores. If if anybody knows about California. A lot of people consider it two different states. So there's our three and a half. Northern gotcha. California, Southern California, Arizona, and one little beautiful store in Hawaii. And that's the store you like to go visit just to get away, right? Yeah. You know, it's kind of like kids. You know, you, you never say that you have a favorite kid, but <laughs> but you do. <laughs> with, you, but you, maybe you do. Um, I might have a favorite store because it's in one of the most beautiful places on our planet in uh on the north shore of Kauai. So that was a dream that that just kind of happened and uh I get there as often as I can which with covid has really been challenging. I haven't been there since February right before the shutdown started because they've been very militant on their shutdown since then. So it's there. I just can't get there to see it. So yeah. Um Mark, how do you handle how do you handle the long distance relationship with that store? You know, it's interesting. So we have been operating stores in California and Arizona for the last about dozen years. So we really learned how to, we, we bought a four store chain uh, back in right before the recession, the, the original, the, the last, last one in 2007 and four stores, two in Southern California, two in, in Lake Havasu, Arizona. That's about a five hour drive from where I sit right here. So we've gotten really familiar um, that cut our teeth on how to manage stores from further away. Prior to that, we were we operated stores in Orange County and San Diego, which is about an hour and a half distance was the greatest spread that we had. So when you jump up to five five hours and you can't fly there, you, you learn how to manage remotely because you just can't get there as often as the say maybe the stores like like you guys have, which are maybe you know 40 minutes or an hour away. So we've we've learned to operate for quite a while remote stores. So you know, now I say I can either drive five hours east or I can fly five hours west, and it's uh, it's a pretty similar deal. You get to choose: do you go to the desert and the river, or do you go to the island? Um, but it's about the same, a little bit more complexity, and certainly there's more complexity with running a store in Hawaii just because of getting freight and such. But uh, we know we've learned over the years, and that's allowed us to expand even further in our most recent last couple of years, our uh, growth strategy, which has us in Northern California, which is a 
seven hour drive or a, an hour and a half flight. So um, the, the first two really kind of allowed us to take on the other growth uh, distances that we've done. What are, uh, what are some of the strategies you learned or you implemented um, when you started with that distance and then what has changed to continue for these strategies? Yeah, you know, that's really good. You know, I, I would say kind of jump into the second half. The, the most important thing or maybe the most valuable thing is in, in, I think in all of our businesses and in a chain environment is how do you communicate on a regular basis? Um, if I have two stores and I can go to them every day, I can see everybody I can engage and interact. But having remote stores, you still need to have that relationship because otherwise you run the risk of being, you know, quote unquote air quotes here, you know, too big and not having a tactile understanding of the store and the team and the community and, and all that. So, um, you know, using Zoom and such, we have a very robust system of, of um, face-to-face, albeit remote, um, web-based interactions with our stores on a regular basis. Just keep that face-to-face and that open interaction. Um, I would say that coupled with, uh, we have a field staff, we have two general managers that, um, general manager, regional manager, but they have no office. They're, they're spending a lot of windshield time between our stores, um, and that's been paramount, really, really key. And it's taken me a lot of years or taken us a lot of years and a lot of evolution to really get um, skilled in our field oversight, but that's monumental. So I'd say those two things are key in any size chain, great communications, really good engagement, and then having boots on the ground on a regular basis. So what's your role in the stores then? Well, uh, <laughs> let me start by saying, you know, there was a day when I could cut keys, run a register, mix paint. You don't want me doing any of that stuff anymore, Ryan. You do not want me to do that. My role in the stores, I would say, you know, over and above being chief bottle washer is the keeper of the culture to kind of steal um, Rick Karp's title. Um, the culture is, is key. I stay very engaged with all the teams. Um, listen, let me start by saying none of what I get to do happens without an incredible team of people around us. If I have a skill or a strong suit or if I've been really lucky, it's that we've been able to build an outstanding support office. So our team that really supports the stores are great, um, very strategic-minded, capable and able to support the stores, and we put the stores first. I mean, none of us have a job here without the stores doing a great job and supporting our communities. So what do I do well? I think if I'm lucky, I've, I've hired well. Um, we've really built a, a great strong culture that has been, I, I would say, the backbone of our business and our success. And, um, and I've learned an incredible amount through that, through many flailings and flounderings to get where we are today. Um, yeah, but I would say if I have a job, it's uh, supporting the teams to the best of my ability. Let's let's stop for a second and go back a little bit. How did you? This is a family store. It started as a family store, correct? And yeah. How did how did you get into it? And when did you take over and kind of start leading? Sure. Yeah. yeah. You know, I yeah for sure. I've, I think like many of us, I'm second generation, so I take no uh, glory in the fact that you know my dad did a lot more of the heavy lifting before I got here. So. Um, I give him big props every day. I, I recognize where my opportunity came from. But um, my dad bought a store, his first store. My dad's super entrepreneurial, 
um, started from scratch, American Dream. He bought a store by chance um, when I was a kid. I was about five years old. He bought our first store. And then by the time I graduated college, um, he had eight stores. And I started two years post-college. I got involved. I was never planning on it. Um, I grew up surfing. You had mentioned earlier, like, uh, I guess that was offline, but um, I, I, I have a pretty passionate ocean sports background. Um, but I grew up surfing, working in surf shops started when I was 13. I worked at the local surf shop. That's all I wanted to do was hang out at the surf shop. I got paid to be there. And I worked in surf shops. Again, this is, it's retail. I started working there when I was 13, worked all the way through high school into college. And then post-college, I started working, or actually in college, started working in uh, the field of my degrees, which have nothing to do with running hardware stores. Um, and I realized pretty quickly thereafter that I was like, I didn't want to go back to school and try to get a, a uh, an advanced degree. And both of my degrees were areas of passion for me. And when you, for me, when you turn a passion into a job, it becomes a job. A lot of people say, hey, if... Uh, what, what's the adage? If you love what you do and you work right. in that, you, you never work a day in your life. For me, it wasn't that way. I was doing what I loved for work, and then I it, I lost love for it. So it made me kind of stop and go, okay, what am I going to do? And long story short, I, I've told the story a zillion times, and I'll, I'll make it quick, but I knew I had this potential opportunity that I, there was never – like I think a lot of people grow up working in the family business knowing that that's what they wanted to do. Maybe the parents of the succession plan was always an opportunity. My dad and I, we never talked about it. Um, I worked, I dabbled in the hardware stores. I was super handy and I spent some time working in the stores, but very little. And I really was focused elsewhere. And I interviewed two of my buddies' dads kind of post-college trying to figure out what do I want to do? And both of them separately basically said this, Mark, you have this rare opportunity because most people in business ultimately want to own their own business and you have this family business. Two, and this is, I say this all the time, they both essentially said the same thing. They said, it doesn't matter if you're selling cars or shoes or expensive watches or surfboards or nuts and bolts. Retail is a people business. And if you want to be in a people business, Mark, you have a great opportunity potentially. And if you try it and it doesn't work, great. So be it. But if you don't, you may never, you, know, you may forever regret not trying it. And so I tried it and it was brutal. <laughs> it was super, it was super tough. My dad and I, I love my dad and he's wonderful. And, but he was a hard charging entrepreneur and um, we went nose to nose a lot. And I always say if, if I have a, a pride point in, uh, you know, the 20 years that I've worked with my dad, it's the fact that we still love each other. We didn't kill each other, and we're we're closer today now that he's retired than ever. So, and that's my story how I got here, and uh, it's been a pretty you know it's been 25 years that I've been with the company, a little bit over that, and uh, which means I've been spending a lot of time at Ace for over 25 years as well. So you took over when there were eight stores, and you've grown it to 19. Is that correct? Yeah, it's a little different. It's been a little bit um, a roundabout way. So interestingly, so we started with eight. Of that, of that eight, we currently have six of those stores still in in operation. We closed one of the original stores last week. Um, oh, really? We so uh, this is how roundabout it's been. 
I've we've closed eight stores in the last eight years. Now I hate closing stores, and we can have a whole other conversation about that. But we we now have 19 stores. Five years ago we had 19 stores, or I guess eight years ago we had 19 stores, give or take. My my ears are off a little bit here, but we've basically had to right place our company and kind of reimagine it in where we operate, where our hub of stores are, where most of these closings happened over time. Some of these were ground ups that just never performed. Some of these were acquisitions of poor stores, trying to make them great stores didn't happen, or they are existing stores that the demographic or the market changed. For example, where I stand in our store right now, it's still a very profitable store. I have a Home Depot one mile away down the street that I'm on. That came about five years ago. There's another one three miles the opposite direction. There's a Walmart. There's a, I mean, I've got everybody all around me, and we still make it. We compete super hard. But in some of our markets, they just didn't have enough uh, market share to or density to survive when depots came in. The one we just closed over the last 10 years, they had two Home Depots come in on both sides of them. And yet the, the landlords wanted a 15% increase in rent. And I always joke, especially with you guys, you can appreciate this. Rents in Southern California, you know, we talk on, we, we're usually talking about dollars per square foot per month that are maybe more than what you guys pay per foot per year. So when you're saying, yeah, we're paying three or four, you know, some stores are paying three bucks a foot plus triple nets per month. Um, there's not a lot of room for, you know, there's not a lot margin for error. So to, to end this or to, to summarize, We've closed eight, but we're at the same store count. So we've closed eight, added eight. We've added eight stores in the last three years and three different markets, but our revenue is over two times more than when we had the 19 stores, you know, five or eight years ago. So we've replaced moderate to underperforming stores with high to, to, from, to good or great stores with much higher revenue and a much stronger bottom line. So it's been really busy, but it's been really exciting and it's really worked out well for us. So grateful to be in this position. Do you own any property that the, your stores uh, sit on or is it all rent? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. So I, my model <laughs> is to be like my dad. So over the years, my dad, again, that first store that he opened in 1970, five was based on one of his very first real estate acquisitions. Um, again, my dad was a total self-starter, super entrepreneurial, and I could go into length on it, but the, one of the first commercial properties he bought had a hardware store in it and a toy shop. And within a year of him buying that property as a investment property in the town that we lived in, um, the little, and I remember the store was a dump, <laughs> but it's a hardware store called Crown Hardware. That's where our, our namesake comes from had been in existence since 1949 and it was a dump, but it was pre Home Depot, no competition. And uh, within a year of my dad buying the business, I'm sorry, buying the building, this as an investment, the mom and pop little owners came and said, hey, Jeff, we're gonna retire. Do you wanna buy the business? And my dad's like, geez, at the time my dad was a sales rep. And he's like, I own the business. I know retail well, heck yeah. And he doubled the business in year one. And that's where it all began. And so, um, that started with a property and over the years my dad acquired more properties with stores so some are leasehold some are owned and he would say mark there are years that the business supports the real estate and some year the real estate supports the business now by chance where we operate 
in coastal Southern California, property values have appreciated incredibly in that time, and it's made rents very expensive. And if you own the property, it's a good, oftentimes a very good investment. So to answer your question, our goal has been to do more of the same. So over the last couple of years, we, where we can, and because we've been able to branch out of Southern California where, where rents and property values are ridiculous, we have been able to acquire uh, about half of the properties of those eight stores that we've acquired are, we've been able to acquire the property as well. And that is certainly part of our goal going forward is when we can, if it makes financial sense and it's doable to control the, the real estate as well as the business. Um, you talked about your role now as keeper of the culture. What are the, some of the things you guys do at your stores uh, culture-wise that you think is unique or or just to keep culture in, on the forefront of um, your managers and all the stores? I, <laughs> you know what I'd say it starts with? Like, we beat it into them. I mean, I beat that drum all day long, and I think wholeheartedly that it starts with me. So I really make sure that how I – you know, come to play and how I communicate and the amount of communications and the amount of interactions that we have, whether it be face-to-face, -face, uh, written word, email, you know, newsletters, or, you know, over web conferences, it's, it's the number one thing we talk about because it kind of, it permeates everything that we do. Um, I wholeheartedly believe that for us to be the best place to shop, we have to be the best place to work. We really try to engage uh, our team members at all turns. We really try to provide, um, as I said, a, bliss, a great place to work is a great place to shop. So we try to make it both fun, fulfilling, and rewarding. Um, we have a pretty robust incentive program that has been nuclear this year because of the growth that I suspect most of you and the listeners have had. We've been very great grateful for the opportunity to be in hardware um, during COVID and be a resource to our communities and be essential. So everything we talk about or everything that I talk about and subsequently everybody, everything that we talk about, we talk about in a cultural standpoint, whether that's how we interact with our vendors, our community, the, the fundraising that we do, the incentives that we provide, um, the way we operate our stores, uh, even the way that we, you know, reprimand, discipline, uh, et cetera, is all from a cultural perspective. And I would say that for many years we operated with a, a strong culture, but it wasn't maybe written down anywhere. It's kind of in the air. Um, and we brought it, we started working with Linda Small, who I think many, many folks know, probably a dozen or so years ago, right after she left working for ACE. And she really helped us articulate our core values, bake them into our operating methodology and use them at all turns. And that was a big starting point. And we've continued that type of relationship with her um, ever since. And I think that's super helpful. We really leverage our core values. And, uh, but I think that, you know, let me say this, it's not always easy. Uh, I've, I've said this a lot of times too, you know, you guys probably know, I've had to let go of a whole lot of really good hardware people because they weren't really good people people. Right. And, you know, they might be world-class at all the things that we do, except they're not good at leading people or not good at engaging people. And uh, that is more important than being able to cut keys really well or mix paint really well. 
So, you know, I, I'm pretty passionate about our job is to turn them or burn them. And that might sound a little harsh, but like if somebody works for me, our job is to turn them into a great employee if they're failing or struggling. And if we can't, if we've done everything in our power, then it's our obligation to burn them and they need to go away because, you know, one bad apple and we've had a lot, we've had plenty of them. <laughs> and, uh, so that's a big part of what we do. So culture is king around here. And, uh, I don't think we can understate the value. Yep. How do you recruit new employees? Um, I don't think we do it any differently than anybody else. I think, you know, we're all using some digital platform, whether it's, um, you know, there's a zillion of them, and, and I think they, they very Ace has a, a great one that works for a lot of people. We have a little bit different one that seems to work better in our markets. Um, I don't think there's any secret to it. I think, you know, listen, I'm not going to say that we're fortunate for COVID. We know that we've all benefited from it for the most part. And, again, I, I say this all the time. My team sees it all the time. I've, my hands are – I'm a good Jewish kid, but i got my hands together in prayer. My eyes are to the sky, and we're very grateful that we are in hardware right now. And yep. pre-COVID, it was very hard to hire. And we did everything that we could, like everybody else. I had lots of conversations with lots of Ace retailers. And what do we do? How do you find them? But it's gotten a lot easier in the last eight months. And so, you know, for what we were, what we really focus on is we really, we really strive to keep a super high retention rate. If you have a high retention rate, you don't have to, you know, you don't have to go out and hunt for people all that often. And, if you're a good place to work and a good place to shop, people want to work there. Now I'm understating it because it was super hard um, at times and in some stores to get people, but all in all, we've been pretty lucky. And then we're hyper-focused on promoting from within. So we really tried to develop our teams and, you know, I really want to be able to promote people from within. And I'm super proud that in three of our stores in Northern California, I have people that have been promoted up through the ranks in Southern California and opted to move and take opportunities up there. And when we bought the Hawaii store, we sent a young man over from Southern California. He had never lived outside of his parents' house and he moved and he ran the Hawaii store for a year. So those are really fun opportunities for us. And you can imagine when I go in and when we announce with a seller of a store and we go in and we do the big announcement, we super, um, super focused on how we do it and very well planned out because I think it's super important. But, you know, I always get to say, all right, well, you know, you work for a, right now you work for a single store family. You can, you can grow within this, these walls, but if you want to grow further, you may have to leave because there may not have been a, a stairwell for you to go in this company. I'm like, now, where do you want to go? You want to go to Arizona? You want to go to Hawaii? You want to go to Southern California? You want to, Go to Northern California. Where do you want to go? Where do you think they they all raise their hands? Where do you think they all say they want to go? Hawaii. They want to go to they all want to go to Hawaii. But we've had that opportunity, and so and because we've gotten broader, we have people. We just in the last two months, one of the stores we bought up in Northern California, one of the young ladies that works there, she goes to school in San Diego. So when she comes back, when school goes back into in person, she's going to go down and work at our store in San Diego while she's going to school. How awesome is that? So we love those opportunities. Um, to kind of leverage our scale and our distance and and be, promote people, but also give people opportunities to to move and stay with the company. Super fun. Do you have a specific leadership program you put these things these people through, or are you using an outside program to help them learn how to be leaders and how to run crown stores? Yeah. Um, 
combination of their end. So as I was mentioning, we have Linda Small. So she does our kind of in-house leadership training program with us. So it's an integrated program. It's not nearly as detailed as if you were to speak with Mike Costello with Costello Zayas. They have Costello University, which I love. They have a much more robust process for bringing people in and they go through this really defined, I think, multi-day training program. We're not good enough. We're not there yet. However, we work with Linda. So if you're in leadership, you're already going through this regular ongoing process and we, um, and that's going to be management training, communications, time management, et cetera. Um, we've readopted in the last six months for our future. We have a future leaders program. So I should talk about that. That's kind of the next level above what Linda Small does with us, which is more hyper-focused on those folks that we've identified as, you know, growth potential leaders for us. And those folks, once they're in that program, again, um, gives them a stepping stone to to management with us. And we've been able to really draw off that. So we're constantly having to focus on building our bench. So we're able to leverage our own folks as opposed to going to the outside. And then third, for people that are either fresh into management or on the cusp of getting into, I'm sorry, like a, a store manager level, we use a third-party coach, um, a gentleman that I've known for a very long time. He's outstanding and he's local, but it's all remote. And he uh, works one-on-one -on -one with these folks. We commit to like an eight or 12 session um, commitment for them. And they have to buy in and sign off that they're, they understand the why that we're doing it and what it's all about and what the goals and objectives are. And that is super helpful. And we're still in mid first round of that, but I'm super, um, I'm a huge believer in coaching. I, you know, show me a pro athlete that doesn't have a coach. Show me a big business success that doesn't have a coach. Ironically, I was watching the pal emails going through today and there were some conversations about coaching and seminars and, uh, and I'm a huge fan of that. So I love to see that on the, on the PAL emails, those were going around just today. So I'm a huge proponent for uh, third-party training, ongoing development and stuff like that. So that's kind of our, our program. That's going to be my follow-up question is, you know, we obviously, you obviously have some resources, you know, uh, smaller stores or single stores don't have. What are some suggestions? I think you just said some right there uh, of what we can do to help our people train them to be better leaders and uh, you get that kind of background that you're giving your people. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that ultimately, you know, if the thing that, that we miss in our program is that I don't get that one-on-one -on -one time that would be super valuable with all those folks. I would imagine um, it, smaller operations have a little bit more or a lot more time that the owner or manager, whoever it would be, could really spend one-on-one -on -one time working with that individual or those individuals to help them grow and learn. You know, one of the things that I we just I recrafted our coaching contract to help kind of distill down and define what the expectations and the goals of the coaching program are when they go to this third-party coach. And it really we had a lot of conversation around it with our team. But it what it comes down to more than probably anything else is that. And I've had this conversation a number of times, and it, 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 it seems to almost never fail. A, a very strong assistant manager, and maybe somebody that's been in that role for a long time, and they can do everything. They can do the scheduling, and they can do the hiring, and the firing, and they can do everything that they're told to do or they're asked to do. Um, there's a big difference 
between being a really strong assistant manager or a very strong number two and becoming the manager, the leader, the owner, whatever it may be. And oftentimes, these folks think that they've got every skill. Oh, I, I mean, I've heard it, and I could, I could, I could tell you names of people who said this to me. I'm better than the store manager. I do everything that he does. I'm way more valuable than him. I've got it all figured out. I already do all this. And then they get in the driver's seat, and they're like, oh, they look around. Nobody's telling me what to do. Uh, uh, what do I have to do on Monday afternoons? What do I have to do on Tuesday mornings? And so we really focus on helping these folks understand the difference between an assistant or a number two and a number one. Leadership versus being a great doer. Leadership, you've got to be able to lead, delegate, oversee. And the biggest thing is how do you get people there? And the first thing I think for us is helping them understand that there is a big difference. Just because you're a great assistant does not mean that you're going to be a world-class store manager. There's a big piece that we need to bolt on there. Yeah. I was looking, listening. You, and you, you know who Jocko Wilnick is? Sure. Of course. Yeah, I was li- I was listening to his podcast, and uh, I don't. He put so many out. I don't know what number it was, but he was just talking about leadership, and he was like, "Why is it that every time you read something, it's like make your leaders better, make your leaders better, but we never invest even money? Like, there's so many companies don't even invest money and time into making better leaders, and I'm just like, that just hit me. Like, we try, but it's like we got to do a lot better because it's so important." Yeah. Well, you know, especially when you're reading, you know, an ex-Navy SEAL leader, you know, his his book is called what? Extreme Ownership. Like you can't F up. You cannot afford to screw up when you're, you know, people's lives, you know, yeah. I, I can't fathom that level of you cannot screw up. Like if, if I didn't, if I forget to open the door in the morning, that's a bad thing. If I, you know, think about what their ramifications are of a screw up. So, yeah, Jocko, well, that's not a guy you want to mess with or meet in a dark alley and or piss off, right? No, exactly. <laughs> but I love him, yeah. Um, but I think there's a lot of tools. I mean, I listen, there's a lot of tools, especially, and you started there, podcasts. What better way these days do many of us get our information or learn or expand our knowledge or, I mean, I, I'm a full-blown podcast dork and that's why i'm honored that you guys asked me to be on here like i'm a huge podcast dork i get tons of information out of them sometimes it's super valuable business stuff sometimes it's brainless surf related stuff um there's tons of for me i i really passion for me about like personal development and um extreme athleticism stuff and and the headspace that allows people whether it's athletics or business the headspace that allows people to get there. And that's the kind of stuff that I really get fired up on. You can get all that in podcasts. There's books that are relatively simple. So it doesn't have to be an MBA program. It just needs to be some focus um, definition of what a person needs. And everybody needs something different. And helping them understand where they need to focus is, I think, the starting point. What are... uh... Sorry, Ryan, if I keep cutting you off. What are uh, some of the podcasts you really enjoy uh, leadership-wise? You know what? Um, I really like people – I like podcasts that are great interviewers with great content. And so for me, it's – the ones I got into very early on were like Tim Ferriss, who is a great interviewer, and he's got just a multitude of interesting people. 
I'm a big Tony Robbins fan. Some people may not like him. I'm a big fan of his because, again, they, they're collecting ideas from people all over the spectrum. Um, there's a guy named Michael Gervais who his podcast is called Finding Mastery. He's got some good stuff. And uh, Jocko Willink, there's some great stuff in there. So those are the kind of ones that I really go to. One of my favorites that I listen to probably more than any these days is a guy named Rich Roll, ultramarathon guy, vegan, attorney, and an incredible interviewer of a wide range of people. But what I find is most of these are, it's the cross-section of business and personal life and and that headspace. And they're all like, the more you, li- I, I don't know if you see this in what you listen to, but the more you listen to them, the more there's, there's so much cross-pollination between what people say that very, very successful people do a lot of the same things. They think about a lot of things the same way. They try, like they've all failed. They, they all, you know, a lot of them do meditation and a lot of them, there's just a lot of really interesting cross sections of, of that group that I find really intriguing and super helpful. Are yeah, you a runner, sure. Mark? You mentioned ultra I, marathons. Yeah, I'm a runner. I love, I've been doing endurance sports for a really long time. So I do, I do endurance running and endurance paddling are kind of two of the, the ones that I really go to. Uh, do you follow the um, ultra marathon runners? Some of them. In fact, I went to, so there's a guy named Dean Carnassus who, he was one of the earliest books I read on ultra marathons. It was called Ultra Marathon Man. And he, he's talking about running through San Francisco and he's doing a 50 miler and he's getting a piece, a pizza delivered to him on the side of the road. He's eating a full pizza while he's running. And he talks about this guy named Topher. And I'm Topher. Well, ends up that I'm reading this book and he's referencing an old friend of mine from when I was in college who became a world-class ultra marathoner. I didn't really know about it until I read that book. And since then I do follow it quite a bit. This guy, Rich Roll is in that world. I'm not an ultra marathoner. I've only done one kind of ultra type event. Um, but I do a lot of marathons and marathon distance stuff. What do you think about when you're running? I, I listen to podcasts like this one. <laughs> I, I went on a long run earlier this week and I listened, I caught up on two of yours. Um, but I, you know what? yesterday I went for a long run. I was listening to podcasts and I must've turned on, like I, I voice record all the time. So I'm constantly stopping or stopping my podcast and, and making notes, whether it just, I think it's like anything, if you're listening to somebody speaking, there's always going for, at least for me, and maybe it's my ADHD, but there's constant things that are popping into my mind that aren't necessarily specific what they're talking about, but it's making me think, Oh, I should do this. What about that? Let's do this. How are we going to do that? So I make tons of notes um, in my phone while I'm running or on my long paddles and stuff, because that's when, that's when my brain seems to work the best. That's about the only time I can manage my distractions is when I'm doing long distance stuff. And I think that's a big reason why I enjoy it. Yeah. I think I read, I, I heard somewhere that like, that's the best time when ideas come, come to your brain is when you're doing something repetitive or, you know, something where you don't have to use your brain a lot but it's active enough that it's going and that's like running like or mowing your lawn or taking a shower like that's when that stuff comes to your head because you're you're actively using your your brain but you're not because it's yeah you know. for sure you know there's an argument there that people would say that i'm never using my brain so if i get to <laughs> use it on my run i'm stoked but yeah it's um you know there's a lot of people i know that 
and listening to podcasts of these ultra marathoners that they never run with music. I know some of my buddies that I train with that never listen to music, even when they're out by themselves. And, you know, anybody that runs or paddles with me long distance, they know that if I can talk, I can paddle or I can run. Like if my mouth can move and you guys are picking up on it right now, if I can talk, I can go all day. Like I won't feel my legs. I won't feel my shoulders. But if I'm by myself, I really need some, I, I need music. I need a podcast. I need something. Um, Cause otherwise there's just too much going on in my mind and I need to tune out. Yeah. Um, let's see. Let's, let's move. Let's, uh, we didn't announce this on the start of this, but you're on the board of directors at ACE. Uh, just can you talk about that just a little bit, what that's like and, uh, and uh, the dynamics yeah. with being a retailer and on the, being on the board. Sure, for sure. Well, first and foremost, let me just say, and I said it earlier, like I've been part of ACE for you know over 25 years. I've been super honored to serve on a bunch of different or a bunch of different roles and different you know organizations. Again, the reason that I think I'm on this is I have been. I'm too old to be in PAL, and as you guys know, there's a there's a new acronym for people like me. It's either OP, Opal or FOPAL. You guys, it's <laughs> old progressive ACE leader or freaking old progressive <laughs> ace leader so i'll let you guys define how that we might have to change the name of the pod for this one but um so i mean i was fortunate enough to be one of the on the founding group of of pal back in probably early 2000s that that's a great story and i'd love to share that with you guys if at some point if you like but the board i've been on the board since 2014 so six years the board is a it's basically a nine-year quote-unquote commitment, but there's three three-year terms when you have to be re-elected to the board. So I've just started my last term. Um, I'm super grateful for the position to serve. I take it super seriously, and I will tell you that everybody on the board takes it incredibly seriously, very hardworking. And if you watch the bulletin boards, you know, the directors and the officers are always kind of thrown under the bus, oh, these idiots and this and that. I can tell you it's so, like, the amount of care and um, – and diligence and hard work and absolute focus on ensuring the the safety, the direction, and the prosperity of the company is paramount with everybody. Like I'm super impressed and I'm proud to be a part of this group. Um, there are some incredibly sharp people. You know, we all, you know, eight of the 10 of us are retailers. The two outside board members are invaluable experts in big business and board direction. Um, and, you know, I think there's always some some misnomers or misunderstanding of what the board does. The board is not, you know, we're not we're not the ones running ACENET. We're not the ones negotiating with Epicor. We're not the ones, you know, making the decisions on what's going to go in the ads or major market stuff. That is not what the board does. The board the board is a fiduciary responsible for oversight, um, guidance. Um, but really ensuring the health and safety of the company is is our role. And ultimately, John Van Heisen reports to the board. And if John was to do something that we felt was, you know, worthy, the board can terminate him. Now, we're incredibly blessed to have a leader like John and the board or the team that he has developed is outstanding and I'm not blowing smoke. I'm a retailer first. I mean, by far, I'm a retailer first. I have a lot tied up in, in ACE. And um, 
I, I, I'm wildly impressed. Now, do I agree with every decision that Ace makes? I don't. As a retailer, I don't. But as a board member, I support, you know, just about everything that Ace does, um, even though I, I'm, you know, as a retailer hat. So the hat, you can, if you can see my hands, I've got two hats. I'm constantly going between retailer and board, trying to make sure that what we do does no harm. It protects the retailers. It supports the organization. And sometimes it gets to be a little challenging, um, but we have a very strong board that really recognizes, and there's a lot of training that, that uh, we're provided on the world stage of board direction. Um, so yeah, nobody takes it lightly. I'm incredibly impressed with the, the duty of care that's, that's put into it. And I think that everybody out there should be very um, aware that we've got a world-class leadership team in John and his, his, his folks. I think most people know that, but we get to see kind of under the hood and a super, super impressive group and very proud to be a part of it. So that's kind of, if you have specific questions, let me know, but that's kind of the way I look at it from a board perspective, from a retailer on the board. Do you have a lot of retailers calling you and saying, hey, why is the board doing this or why is the board doing that? You know, I find that I get some retailers that know me personally reach out to me and some that don't. I know that there are other retailers that get a lot more calls and ask those questions. And usually if there's something, it's either seemingly a big deal or a script or if they personally have a bone to pick or something or just a question, that's when the calls come in. I, you know, it, it's been a very good time to be in hardware. And as a result, there probably hasn't been a bunch of reasons to call and complain or call and inquire. But I know that there's a number of people on the board that do get more calls than me. Obviously, everybody across A seems to know Brett Stevenson well. He's also chairman of the board. He gets more calls than I do by far. Um, but I think that also, I hope that a lot of folks are comfortable enough to go to directly to ACE on more non-strategic tactical things than to the board. But um, yeah, we, get, we definitely get some. So where will my warehouse get Lysol back in? Oh, uh, well, maybe right after Walmart gets it back in. I heard all the, Listen, the new all the new complaints are supposed to go to the new board member, so send them all to Matt Mazzoni, right? Hey, we're happy to have Matt. You know, Matt is a stud and uh, happy to have him on the board. He's a great representative from New York. Um, but, yeah, send him all the complaints. <laughs> he'll like that. Yes, he'll like that. Hey, well, going New York. Back, oh, go on. I'm sorry. Going back six years ago, what's the process like to to be um, validated for the board and to to attending your first board meeting? What was that all like about? You know the 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 way just for maybe clarity's sake, the way that one gets um, selected or ultimately elected to the board is done by the. Um, there's a governance group, there's a, a committee within the uh, the board that is responsible for finding future board members. So they, this is a combination of getting insights from John and his team and the field, getting insights from board members and who would be a good candidate to consider, um, you know, and then there's the criteria that's looked at, you know, over and above an ACE dealer in good standing, um, but really, they, what we look at is diversity of thought, diversity of operations, diversity of, of insights, 
we need a wide breadth. So, you know, Matt Manzoni and I are from opposite sides of the country in very, very different kind of operations. That's the type of thing that we need. So he's ultra urban in Manhattan and Brooklyn. He serves the high rises. He's one of the biggest, I think the biggest Benjamin Moore paint dealer in ACE in the country. And I'm from, you know, suburban West Coast, primarily suburban stores. Like our operations are completely different. That's a great mix. And we've got Amy Kaplanis from a mountain single store operation in the mountains of Colorado. And then everybody else in between. So we're looking for diversity of thought. We're looking for a good communicator. You need at a board level, you need somebody that is willing and, and understands that they're going to take their retailer hat off at sometimes and have to put other ideas first, even if you don't 100% agree with them for your personal operation. But if it's better for the, the whole or the greater good of ACE, you just have to understand and be willing and able to make those distinctions and support things like that, even if it may not benefit you directly. And so really having open ability of having great dialogue, insights, um, success and experience, and all this diversity, those things are all super important. And so th that group will go out and then interview different folks all over the country until the final decision is made or and that offer is made and then they go through the electoral process um, during which time the the candidate is invited to their first meeting and start to get engaged in the process see what it's like and go from there so it's a it's it's not a short runway like it took from the time that i think my first interview happened until i was notified that i was the candidate select was you know three quarters of a year, I think. And then from the time that, and then I was told, and they said, hey, don't tell anybody. This is secret, you can't tell anybody um, until I was able to go to a meeting and then ultimately elected, it was another half year. So for me, it was like an 18 month process, mm -hmm. if I recall, you know, more or less. Other people, it's been shorter and I'm probably other people have been longer. So it really varies. And, uh, but that's kind of the way that it works. Did that answer your question? That, that does, thank you. Sure. Let's uh, let's Ryan get any more questions about the board. No, I I'm good, Blake. Okay, let's talk about Pal. I want to hear the I want to hear the uh, stories, Scott. First of all, about yeah. Pal, and then uh, I just want to hear how Pal has helped you and uh, just some of the benefits that you gleaned off Pal. Yeah, for sure. So first and foremost, let me just say that I'm a like I Pal has been incredible for me. And again, even though I rolled off many, many years ago, um, you know, I was one of the guys that was in the room when we made a decision on how old you could or could not be to be on the advisory board. Um, I think I was like one of the first ones that was, that aged out. But at the time, so this is, you know, early 2000s, the CEO of ACE was, was Ray Griffith. For any of you that know Ray or have spent time with Ray, still just an incredible guy. He hasn't aged a day since he retired from ACE. Uh, I'm very fortunate. He's chairman of the board for ACE International which is a subsidiary of ACE, which I serve on that, that board as well. He's the chairman and he is just as charismatic, just as intelligent and just an incredible communicator. But back in early 2000, when he was the CEO, he had a goal or vision of putting together a group of like future leaders, quote unquote, future, future leaders, you know, quote unquote, young guns, um, around ACE helped pool these folks together at that time. There, other than meeting people at ACE shows and stuff, there wasn't a group. So if you can imagine all the relationships you guys have built through PAL, like I, it's, there wasn't 
there wasn't a vehicle for that prior to this vision of Ray. So Ray's like, I want to pull together these, you know, next generation leaders, people that are on the upswing, people that are on committees, people that, you know, are going to potentially own businesses or own chains, whatever, down the road. And maybe we'll be able to develop some future board leaders out of this. How do we get these groups together? So that was Ray's vision. And clearly it worked. But at the time, the, the names that were on the list of, I think, the founding members of PAL, you'll recognize a lot of them. Chris Engrender, currently on the board. Eric Friedman, Northern California. I talked to him the other day. Art Friedman's his father, but Eric was the first president of PAL. Eric Hassett, I think you guys know him. Michael Wynn, I think you know him. Jeremy Nelenik, I think you know him. Brad Green, founder of uh, Margin Master, and a couple others that have either sold or retired or resigned or left ACE. But that's, those were the founding members. And I've got stories from one of our founding meetings in Las Vegas at a bar with Ray and Eric Hassett didn't have a shirt on, you know, stuff like that. Um, and then jump ahead. So it was pretty incredible. And that was kind of the, that was the genesis of, of PAL. Again, 20, 20 ish years ago, we're close to it. Um, you know, at that time, when Michael Wynn, Sunshine Ace, Jeremy Melnick, Gordon's Ace, and I used to, we'd be, you know, we were younger men, we'd have drinks and we'd sit around and it went from having like drinks with everybody to all of a sudden the three of us would find ourselves on a couch having drinks, talking business till small hours of the night. And we would then follow up with phone calls and it kind of became this little group of us that we were just kind of sharing ideas and, and bouncing stuff off the wall off each other. And again, uh, winds in Florida, I'm in Southern California and uh, Melnick's in Chicago. So we're super diverse, very different stores, different parts of the country, but super similar, second generation, a um, lot of the same issues, chain size, everything. Well, we took that idea and I, on the, on the West Coast, I have um, uh, Eric Hassett and Paul Felice for Miners. And the three of us started talking and we're like, hey, well, let's do a left coast group and we'll start, let's go spend some time at each other's stores and we're gonna go kick the tires, see what, see what it's all about. We'll, you know, walk stores, share stories and give some feedback. And it was super tough love. It was really, really cool. And within the first, you know, the, the first trip we did was at Miners and they have world-class stores, Central Coast, California, some of the best nurseries in the country outstanding stores and yet we still kicked each other's butts the whole time and you know we left that meeting we're like and then we got for drinks afterward we, i think we did like a three or four day deal and you guys uh blake and ryan are you familiar with the term seagull management i am not all right you i think you'll you'll understand this very quick and i think many of the, the pal listeners will because a lot of times if you're second generation and the first generation is still working or if you're parents, whoever it may be, are working. Seagull management is this. Seagulls fly in, they poop <laughs> all over everything, and they fly out. And so that's seagull management. The, the owner or manager comes in, tells us how bad we're doing, poops all over it, and then leaves. Well, we go, gosh, this wasn't, you know, our first visit, like, we're like, this wasn't seagull management. We were leaving, like, giant piles of poop <laughs> on each other. Like, that was, like, dinosaur size. That's, like, pterodactyl size poop and that's where the name the pterodactyl group came from so if you know the pterodactyl group pterodactyl group was like a small splinter group of pal made up of win melnick 
Hassett, Felice with minors, Brett Stevenson, um, Mark, Mark Friedman, Gina Schaefer from DC. And we just started doing what I just described. We started going to each other's operations around the country about once or twice a year, three or four days, walk in stores, get in a, in a boardroom, talking stories, talking about what we can do. We'd have a full-blown agenda. And it was incredibly valuable. That's the pterodactyl group. And the amount of benefit that I got out of being on PAL, meeting all the people that has now turned into the pterodactyl group, all these people I'm talking about are still some of my, not just like confidants or friends and ace. Like I talk to a lot of these people on a regular basis and it's about work, but it's also about life and kids and everything else. And they're very, very good friends of mine. And it's all by way of PAL. Great. And so that's the genesis. That's where we are today. So now I'm an, I'm an, I'm a faux pal, freaking old progressive ace leaders with a bunch of friends that are similarly aged out pal members, but we're in the pterodactyl group now. Awesome. One thing, though, I think the misconception is that the, the faux pal um, isn't welcome at our summits or at our network events because they are, quote unquote, too old. And I I would love to see them make a comeback and stay out to the wee hours of the morning talking business with some of the, the current pals. Here's the, here's the problem, Ryan, is that most of us faux pals, we go to bed by like nine o'clock now, maybe 10. So those wee hours, those hurt now and get old. But listen, I really, I, I will say that um, there's a, I think there was a bit of a lack for a while there between the board and pal group. You know, back when we started it, the very first liaison was our own Brian Weiborg. And I know there's always an executive uh, liaison with the PAL group. And I know that Brett Stevenson, as chairman of the board, has really wanted to re-engage the, the board with, with PAL for exactly the reasons that Ray Griffith wanted to, to build it at the beginning. So I know that we're, we're seeing more, I think, engagement between the two groups, and I think that's outstanding. So, but I think that I think you'll see, I mean, if we have an open invitation, I think whether it's old, you know, old pals or board members or pterodactyl folks, I think we'll, we'll see some, uh, some collaboration there for sure. Awesome. Yeah. Oh boy. Uh, we're coming up on an hour here, Ryan. You want to keep going guys, a little longer? Just so you guys know, I can talk about this stuff all day long, <laughs> all day long. Um, Let's just talk about your stores a little bit. Do you guys do anything uh, niche-wise, or are you just pretty standard hardware stores? You know, what I found is, um, listen, our stores are super diverse in what we operate. So we operate stores, I've already talked about where they are, but we go from, you know, small, you know, 6,500-square-foot store in Hawaii to 20,000-square-foot stores in Arizona, full-blown lumber yards in Arizona, full-blown nurseries in Northern California, and everything in between. So we, we have a very big diversity of operations, size, scale, volume, um, makeup of where they are. I would say that store by store, we do a lot of store localization to really be specific to the communities. And yet I would say that the things that, if I had a magic wand for myself, and I'm a big with the magic wand, um, it would be the ability to do boutiques really well like the Crepes, like the Murphs. There's so many great examples of boutiques that I think are such a huge community driver, but they're really hard and I am not smart enough and we've not been capable enough to replicate that. We have little bits and pieces of that throughout the company in different areas, 
and we're going to try to get better at it because I think we have some more opportunity there. But um, I would say that our stores are pretty typical, you know, 80% to 85% of the product comes from Ace. The balance comes local, dropship driven, and then we get into these specialties where, you know, whether it's convenience lumber or full-blown lumber yard doing house packs and windows or full-blown nursery or just little garden center, everything in between. But I would say that we're more, we kind of have a saying, and my dad actually told this to us when we were first buying the Hawaii store. He's like, guys, just make, because we're talking about, do we bring in steel? Do we do this and that? And he's like, make sure you're a world-class hardware store first, add the fluffy second. And I was like, we've really stuck by that. It, it makes a lot of sense to us. We have to be really, really good in the core areas before we start adding, you know, the, the, the fluffier or harder stuff to manage. And we've done a lot of work to be better core hardware over the last three years. Surely one of your stores though sells paddleball, paddle sports stuff so you can get it at wholesale, right? So you can use it. Not a one, but see, I'm a, we're very much a, a relationship based company. So I have a lot of friends that have paddleboard companies or whatever. So we can work some deals out there. There you time. go. <laughs> gotcha. Ryan, what, what do you got for me? Yeah, no, I'm like, yeah. Blake can talk. Blake can talk like I can talk. I want to hear yeah. you. What do you got for me? <laughs> what, what kind of seasonality do you have in your business? I mean, in the Midwest, we have the, the two and a half seasons, summer, winter, and road construction. But what's the <laughs> What what kind of seasonalities do you have that, you know, you're resetting the store for or, um, selling products different times of the year? So what's interesting is we're just starting to get familiar with that. Southern California sells lawn and garden all year, sells grills all year. We never sell snow equipment. I, I remember years ago at a multi-store group meeting, one of the early ones, um, I was looking at the sales data from Costello's. That multi-store group is another group I was fortunate enough to be at the early stages in, and we would like pal, we would, they were like, we would get very intimate and share numbers and stuff. And I was looking at his sales report and he has, you know, many more stores than we do, but they, I, I you know, we have a, a class listing by volume, you know, ranked and he had like a $2 million or a $20 million, whatever it was, a big number in one class. And I'm like, Oh, what is that? And I go over and I'm like, Oh, it's snow products. I'm like, we have zero. I'm like, if we sell anything in that class, it's because somebody bought a snow shovel for the beach, you know? So we, other than one of our newest stores, we just bought a store up in the hills in Northern California. They have seasonality. They get a little bit of snow, but they definitely get the cold and they go in and out of lawn and garden. The bulk of our stores, Hawaii, Arizona, Southern California, it's, we have big summers and big Q4s and softer Q1 and softer Q3 but nothing like the, the spikes and I'm doing, I'm showing my hand, nothing like the peaks and valleys that you guys see during uh, spring, summer and Q4. What's the temperature there right now? Oh, it's a balmy 75 degrees and the surf, the surf looked good as I drove in this morning. Although I did not get a chance to go enjoy it. Um, but I mean, and in Northern California, uh, our newest store is in the wine country up in Napa Valley, Calistoga. We just closed escrow on that last week. And that's another one of my new favorite stores. And we have a major remodel <laughs> going on there. But it's, it's been a store. It's called Silverado Ace. It's been a hardware store in that community since the 1860s. And uh, just a great little opportunity for us. But 
that is a, an area that was in the news all last week, or I'm sorry, two weeks ago. We were supposed to close escrow two weeks ago, but there was a fire, one of the major, the glass fires, one of the big ones you were probably hearing about on the news, surrounded our entire community. And for a week, everybody was, um, the whole community was kicked out and the fire departments from all over the place surrounded the whole community to make sure that the city did not burn to the ground. So, oh, man. Um, and, it's, and it's another red flag warning up there. Crazy weather. So when you hear about global warming in California, we are really seeing some crazy impacts of extreme heat and extreme storms, um, whatever the cause, we won't get political, but it has definitely been a very interesting time in California. So, no, in these stores, we do not have, you know, we'll make room for big Christmas, but we try to keep corrals out year-round and lawn and garden does not shrink. So we really don't have to do that max, that, that mass moving, but we also don't see those huge lawn and garden spikes that you guys do in spring. What, what kind of, uh, structure do you have for buying products for the store is it is it a central office that buys or is it each store is responsible for their own discovery sets and and planograms no that's a great question we do most of that centrally so the stores will order will handle their rso's and some of their drop ships a uh, lot of but the skew mix is all handled centrally so discoveries level one two threes um and and even like even loading of SKUs is all done centrally, but the influence comes from the store. So we have two general managers. They know the stores very, very well. They're very involved in the mixed discussions. Uh, we'll survey the stores on, you know, what they think they need from a, you know, do they want super or convenience or neighborhood or core, et cetera, et cetera. So we try to, we, we really try to simplify the process. I'm a firm believer that, um, complexity is the enemy of execution. So the more stuff that we can remove from the stores gives them more time to take care of customers. I mean, the reality is if they take care of customers and they can ensure that their accounts are clean, everything else works incredibly or a whole lot better. And so we really try to do that. Now, they, they obviously have a lot more work than just that, but the focus in the stores has to be um, alleviated from too much behind the scenes work. So we really try to centralize that as much as possible. And then that's where the benefits of scale come in. I've got three folks in our buying office. Two are based here in Huntington Beach. One is in our, one of our Northern California stores and they handle you know, the bulk of the inventory related stuff that we're managing, which as you guys all know, there's a lot to it. Yeah. What are you doing for advertising? So probably like everybody else, we're still doing print um, although less and less and less, we're down to about, you know, less than a dozen print ads a year. And I think, you know, five years ago, we were probably up near 20. Um, we do a, an exhaustive email campaign. Our, our marketing department sends out an incredible number of, I think we're known as the most emails going out. That can be, you know, you could, you could accuse us of too many. Um, but based on our homework, we believe that's been pretty effective. A lot of social media. You know, the stuff that's super hard to track is what we're really trying to focus on. Um, we follow a lot of what ACE recommends, but we do our own print, really customized to our markets. Um, we, yeah, I think like everybody else, we're, we're following a lot of what ACE recommends, making some of our own decisions and choices, and trying to leverage the opportunities that we have market by market. You mentioned community involvement before. What is a unique 
way that you are involved with your community? Um, you know what? I think I don't know if I don't know if unique is the way, but we are one of the one of the chains out there that we're leveraging the heck out of the Roundup feature. Um, so, like so many others, we are so happy to be part of CMN, and that's a super passionate area for me. We're a big, big, big CMN um, focused company, um, and so we say really engage with the local hospitals. And we now have six hospitals that we that we work with across the across the chain. Um, but the Roundup feature has been just monumental, and so we, we leverage the heck out of that for CMN. We also use it for a lot of locals. So today, our two new stores are up in Northern California, and I mentored the fires. Today, we're turning on a local roundup for the two local fire departments in those communities to do local, you know, local roundups. We do a ton of that. So we're constantly bouncing between CMN roundup, which we keep on pretty much all the time, unless we're doing a local roundup for a month or a two-week period. So we're constantly in it, and we have very little negative feedback. I mean, incredibly little. And in fact, most of the stores are like, you know, 1% of people are like, oh, why are you guys always asking? But the majority of the time, because we, it's relevant, it's for the kids, it's for the fire department, it's for the, you know, the computer department at the school, it's for the cheerleaders. It's, we keep it apolitical, but we stay super local. And that's been super important. And we also, so that's big. I mean, I'm super proud. We're going to have another significant six year, uh, sorry, six digit donation to CMN this year. We're well into the six digits already, uh, the six figures, and that makes me super, super proud. We also do stuff like we do a toy drive every year. We do letters to Santa every year. It's a little, these are both a little bit challenged this year with COVID, but we're going to work around it. So we, yeah, I think that's it. We try to go, we focus locally, we focus um, on the community, and we like to engage like everybody else, I mean, we're always donating stuff to local events and stuff like that. But you said innovative. Um, I don't think we're doing anything innovative, but we're definitely leveraging the tools that we have. And Roundup has been just a, a phenomenal tool for us. Uh, what's your uh, – I know you don't work on the floor very much anymore, but do you have a good customer story that, that you memorable to you? You know – I mean, I love working on the floor, and I might not know everything, but I'm pretty good with customers because that's that's the fun part, right? It's the people business. I said that at the very beginning. I mean, that's yep. that's what I really enjoy. And so, to have a specific one, I, I've got it here. Here's what I would say that it's probably the the best customer stories. We really closely monitor all of our five sort, all of our Yelp scores, and the number we're probably you know like you know, 30 to one, five star to one stars. And then the one stars, I personally respond to any complaint like that. We're, we're all over those immediately. But the number of, you know, positive um, five star uh, responses via Yelp or Google comments on Facebook, and then we're super proactive. We, we share all those all the time. So every week we're reporting on, on and sharing the five star reports across the company to the whole company. So everybody can see that these are the stores that were getting five stars and here are the comments. And, and so we share a lot of that stuff. So I'm just super proud that the team is just doing a heck of a job. And again, I think that goes back to the culture conversation. Like we share the wins, we celebrate the wins, we make it a big deal because those are the behaviors we're trying to drive. And I think that sharing that and making a big deal about it is a big part of it. So, you know, I can name a ton of things that, that I've done that, you know, I could probably, you know, examples of good customer service. 
but I'm always blown away by the level of customer service that some of our team members give and get credit for publicly. It's just that's that's what makes me pretty happy. Um, Ryan, we'll we'll probably try to end this here soon. I'm, but I'm I do running have, out of questions. Yeah, I got. Yeah, a I had many to start with, but uh, you know, he keeps talking about this magic wand. Uh, my question <laughs> for you is. You got Harry Potter or you got Lord of the Rings. Which one are you picking? Ooh, I can't pick both. See, I would take both of them. No, I know so what I. But uh, mm. you got to mm. pick. You got to pick uh, one. Which one are you going to go with? You know what? I would pick Harry Potter. Believe it or not. And what's funny? My nineteen-year-old, my almost nineteen-year-old son and his girlfriend have—they just in the last three months have watched every one of those movies almost back to back to back to back. They'd never watched them before, and he never read the books. He just wasn't interested. But I think she got him intrigued into it. But uh. What I found is I watched all the the Lord of the Rings one. Like, I've seen them all and I've read them all. But now they're, like, so loud and gory and stuff. I'm like, eh, kind of over them. I kind of like the magical, mystical stuff with Harry. <laughs> a, little, a little simpler. The Lord of the Rings is a, a little, little more intense. Well, I'm a simple kind of guy. <laughs> we, we picked that up. <laughs> uh, Ryan, you got anything else? I do not. No, you do. You wanted to ask Mark something before we got on this podcast. Oh, this was, a, was. this was the first question I was supposed to ask Mark. Mark, we're going to start a new segment on the PalPod, and the segment's going to be entitled, Will You Be My Friend? So I'm sending you a friend request on Facebook because you show up as a person I may know, and we're going to see <laughs> if you respond, and we're going to see about that on the next uh, episode. You're either going to get a smiley face or you're going to be uh, called out for declining my friend request. Dude, I, you are my friend already. I will collect. <laughs> I will accept that in a heartbeat, Ryan. Come on. That's uh, funny. Um, yeah, one last question. In. Who do you think we should uh, interview next or suggestions of who we should talk to? Gosh, you know, there are so many. But here's what I would say. I love Ace Hardware stores that I've either – that are completely different from mm -hmm. what I do or what we do or what's typical. Um, so to answer that question, I could tell you all the great retailers that or great stores or great stories because there's so many of them. But I would rather challenge you, Blake and Ryan, to, who does something completely outside the norm that we could all learn from? That's what that's the person I would love to have. I'm not sure who that is, but we always hear about stores across the country that are completely foreign to most of us on how they do. They're either bigger or they 10,000 or 100,000 SKUs in. That's the stuff I want to hear about. So you guys find them, and, and you'll have answered my question. I don't like that. I don't, you turn it back on us, Ryan. I don't like that. That's not how it's supposed to happen. <laughs> well, that just means that we can, uh, we can go touring around the country and yeah. visit the store in Hawaii, and I'll charge it back to the board of directors for sending us on this mission. <laughs> exactly. Perfect. Uh, send, the, well, send, the bill, send the bill to Brett Stevenson. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Mark, we appreciate you taking the time to talk to us. It was good. It's always good to talk to you. So thank you very much. Well, guys, thank you, Mark. Thank you for, yeah, you got it. Thank you for having me. I really do appreciate it. And I'm super impressed by what you guys do and super proud that you're not only keeping the PAL, you know, vision and, um, and the, the experience going, but you're building it with new tools and new thoughts. I, I love this. I think it's awesome. So we look forward to having some OPALs or FOPALs. <laughs> seeing you guys at your next event. 
Yep. Sounds good. We're All we're right, working thanks, on fellas. something. We're working on on trying to get this to happen again. So thanks, Mark. Perfect. Thanks, guys. Bye now. Yep. Yep. Take bye. care.